like any other day of the year, if someone says that in the public sphere, they get criticised for it. Yet here they are, saying and singing high praise to Jesus with a smile on their face. Oh, I thank God that you know we live in a world which people gather together publicly and we do these things and these words go out. But we need to keep praying too that uh, those words would take root in people's hearts. Now normally when we come to the time where we reflect upon the Bible, we usually have a Christ service and other things, but we don't have that this morning. Uh, we will be a little bit shorter. There are activity packs up near that back table, so if you've got kids who want to avail themselves of that, or if you think I'm just going to be so boring, then go for gold. Um, also, those, those kids' books, if you, uh, your children want to have a look at those during the time, they're most welcome to do so. Now, but before we reflect upon God's word, let's ask God to help us to understand and to see the blessing in his word. Lord God, we, we thank you that we're not left to figure it out, what happened all those years ago. We thank you that you are a God who likes to make yourself known. You didn't have to be involved in your creation. You didn't have to in any way communicate with the people whom you made. But Lord, we thank you that you delight in being known. And even when we got it wrong, you came not to give us what we deserve, but you came to suffer what we deserve so that we might know you. We pray that through your word you might encourage us to see again with wonder and joy the birth of the Saviour as spoken in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we've got another Christmas Another year of novelty, socks and jocks. There could be nothing better in the world, could there? But it's funny, for some people, Christmas is a time to start to daydream. It's a time to start to think about how good would Christmas be if I got this? And it's usually a really far-fetched idea. How good would it be if I got this fancy car, a house, a spouse... A mouse, that just rhymed, it wasn't actually that exciting. You know, that that one thing you think, if only I had this, life would be complete. It's kind of like saying, if I have this one thing, no matter how fanciful it is, I believe this is going to rescue me from the drudgery of my day-to-day life. It's, It's going to rescue me, it's going to make me complete, whole, Sometimes we're even so foolish to say, this thing would be my saviour. Really? It would be your saviour? Now I understand the emotional side of things, that sometimes we really think that we desperately need something and we convince ourselves in a mind that if we get it, everything's going to be perfect, everything's going to be sweet. But you know what? Thousands of years of human history have shown one thing. When people get these one things, it's exciting for a while, then all of a sudden there's a new one thing that they need to be complete. I'm reminded of Kerry Packer, very rich, wealthy man, who was asked, how much money is enough? And he says, a little bit more. We're never really happy, are we? 
The one thing that we're so certain is going to make our life complete doesn't. It never does. Sometimes I even begin to wonder, why do we even have silly thoughts like this? Is it just because we're greedy and we want more stuff? And It could be that. Or is it because something within us is hardwired thinks that there's more to life than this and it's kind of misdirected in the, in the wrong direction? I don't know the answer to that question, possibly a bit of both. But why am I even talking about this concept of alternative saviours or alternative things? Is it just because it seems like a fun thing to say or is there some connection? Well, the thing is, there is actually a historical background to the Bible passage that we're looking at that makes this an important background. So as we work our way through, we're going to talk about in the days of another saviour, that there is one saviour for all and everlasting peace. In the days of another saviour, not quite the way the the Bible verse begins in chapter chapter 2 verse 1, the way the Bible says, it says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So you kind of stretch the imagination a little bit. And having to say, in the days of another saviour, it just says it's some Caesar Augustus guy who wants to cause census that everyone be registered. But there's more from our historical records about who this Caesar Augustus is, what he claimed and what others claimed about him. He was born in 63 BC. He was son of the nephew of Julius Caesar and he was born given the name Octavian. After Julius Caesar was assassinated, Octavian teams up with Mark Antony and together they defeated Brutus and Cassius in Philippi in 42 BC. You think, these are all familiar names. I know about these names in history. Guess what? Augustus is real history. Jesus is real history. No wonder there's, there's connections there. But if you think Australia is the only one who have leaders who backstab one another, 31 BC, Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra, and all of a sudden he is the sole ruler and leader of the biggest empire in the entirety of the world at that time. Now I know you didn't come here for a history lesson, now, school's finished, that's all over for the year. But as the sole leader of the largest empire in the world at that time, there's a lot of other things about this man that is important to think about as a background. When he becomes emperor, he's given the title of Caesar Augustus. Now that name Augustus means holy or revered. Now that in and of itself says something about how he saw himself and how he expected others to think of him. But it goes on further than just the name that was given to him. He was the first of the Roman emperors who insisted on the emperors being regarded and treated as a god. There's an inscription dated from around 9 BC that speaks of Caesar Augustus as a God whose birthday signaled the beginning of the good news, or the same Greek word that we have for gospel in our Bibles, for the world. 
So here we've got one who claims to be holy and revered, and the reputation is, at his birth comes good news to the whole world. And another inscription, which is kept in the British Museum, says this, Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a saviour of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea. While cities bloom with order, harmony and good seasons, the productivity of all things is good and at its prime. There are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present which fills men so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. Just in that one inscription, it says he is a son of a god, or according to theory anyway, of Zeus. He's described as being the saviour of the people making peace with all of creation and bringing goodwill to all people. Now, they might sound like very similar terms to something that you've just heard read. But when you summarise the things that are being said about this guy, he's been said to be holy, revered, bringing good news to all of the world, the Son of God, saviour of the people, making peace with all creation, goodwill to all and is the sole ruler of the entire populated world at that time. So if there's ever going to be a claim of someone who thinks they've got all rule, all power, all authority, all status, Augustus was the man. And that was the setting into which the real king, the true ruler, the true saviour was born. The one saviour for all. Just think about this. At a time when Augustus thinks he's got the whole world under his sovereign control. He decides he wants to flex his muscles, show something of his his power and his authority. So he calls for the registration of all the people, both so that he can gain from their taxes, but also so he get a way of quantifying how many loyal subjects he has underneath his rule. But despite what he is doing by way of a power play, what we see is he's really just a pawn in the hand of God. He thinks he's calling this census to show something of his grandeur and his might and his authority. But some 700 years before this even took place, the prophet Micah spoke this way, saying, But you, O Bethlehem of Paphrath, who are too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So Micah is speaking about a ruler who would come, and not just any ruler, one whose days are from old, one who is the ancient of days, one who is eternal. And he's going to be in Bethlehem. One who has eternally existed. Now Mary and Joseph, they're not living in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph are living in Nazareth. Yet Jesus gets born in Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus calls for people to be registered and they had to go to the place of their family origin. And that is why Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem. 
Had Augustus not called for the people to be registered, Jesus wouldn't have been born there. And now, with the background of what Micah said some 700 years ago, and now these events transpiring, even though Augustus is claiming to have all power, all rule, all authority, we see who's really calling the shots. There is a God who is in control of all. But if this is the long-awaited Messiah, if this is the, the God of all eternity, isn't there going to be a grand fanfare when he enters into this world? I mean, after all, this wannabe Augustus, if he had a child, there would be major celebrations. It, it would be a big event. It would be all about showing off his power. But as we look at Mary and Joseph, as we did again last Sunday, they're totally insignificant people. Humble, everyday people, not esteemed in the eyes of their peers. This child's not born in a palace. Our Bible verses tell that there was no room at the inn, which incidentally is not a hotel. There's various theories about what inn means, whether it's a shelter for travellers, a cave, some even say a guest room that's on a house. Whatever it is, wherever it was, they said, we don't have room for this child. You can go somewhere else. And this king of kings, this lord of lords, this eternal king, is born in a stinky area designated for animals, laid in a food trough. Now, it's one thing to imagine that the eternal Son of God would leave all the glories of being beside his Father to enter into the mess of this world. That's one thing. But to be born amongst stinky animals, and I can guarantee you, any nativity scene you have ever seen is far more pristine than what was reality. But never once do you see anyone complain about Jesus being placed in a food trough. Mary and Joseph don't say, don't you know who this kid is? You don't see Jesus get all grumpy and narky later on in his life. It's like, I can't believe you guys let me get born in this place. Even though he's the promised king, the promised saviour, he didn't come to be served. He says he came to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Unlike Augustus, who forced people to acknowledge him, forced them to, to worship him and think highly of him, Jesus willingly endured the shame of the way in which he was treated. And not only does he endure the shame, he comes and dies for those who are his enemies. I just want you to think about that for a moment. Could you imagine if someone committed a crime against you that you would do their time in prison? Someone has done something vile towards you and you think, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take that for them. Because all of us haven't honoured God. All of us are guilty of living as though we wished he didn't exist, as though he's, uh, he's our enemy. We turn our back on him, the one who's given us life, breath, everything. We're all guilty of it. And because we're all guilty of it, his coming truly is, as the angel says, good news for all people. 
And it's not just good news for all Christians. It's good news for all people. Whether you feel like it's good news, it is good news. And while Joseph and Mary were seen there of low status, who is it that God first reveals the news of the birth of his son? To shepherds. There's a, there's a writing in the Mishnah, which is like a written version of some of the oral Jewish traditions, that speaks so lowly of shepherds that only a leper was considered lower than a shepherd. That was how they were viewed in the eyes of their peers at their time. Yet this is who God is pleased to bring the news of the birth of his son. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joys that will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. We saw in some of those earlier inscriptions that Augustus claimed to bring peace to the entire created order. But it wasn't a true peace. It was very much a, a forced peace, kind of like Hitler's concept of peace. Everyone appeared to be in agreement with everything that was going on. It was neither satisfying or lasting. But this one has come to bring an everlasting peace. Now, I know we don't live under Caesar Augustus, but I had us thinking from the beginning in some of those illustrations of we are often sold or, or called, marketed towards thinking about other things, other worldviews as being our saviour. They sort of, if I just have this thing, I will be complete. Things we know which will never satisfy. Best case scenario, they offer a fleeting, short-lived, temporary satisfaction and joy that fades out very quickly. Now the Bible tells us something about human nature. It says God has set in all of us, in our hearts, the concept of eternity. Every single human being has within their hearts a concept of eternity. And it goes even further to say that God has made plainly known to us that there is a God of eternal power that everybody knows and we're without excuse. So I don't need to convince someone God says he has made it plainly known to them. But much like every other inconvenient bit of news that we know, the things we don't like, we just suppress them. We try to pretend like they don't exist. And we suppress it because we don't like the implication. The implication is, if he's king, I'm not. If he is king, he is the one who's worthy of all honour. He is the one to whom we live for, not me. Not only do we know it, we're told in the Bible that all creation groans for the redemption that this one is bringing. There's a longing within us that we're restless, we're unsettled. We know there is something more. As a result, we look everywhere, we try everything, anywhere but the perfect saviour 
because we find it inconvenient. We look at all of our alternative pursuits, the things that we think that we need. We think this is going to make up for what is lacking. They do nothing. But I can tell you one thing. A person who genuinely finds peace with God, there's not one of them who says, you know, that was temporary, that novelty wore off. None of them says that is not satisfying. It is an everlasting peace. How do we find this peace with God? Is it like those countries who have these certain rituals each time of the year where they just pardon certain criminals? They just think, oh, well, we'll just get all the balance of the world right, we'll just let a few go. God doesn't overlook our rebellion. Our rebellion is rebellion against him. It deserves to be judged. It deserves to be punished. We deserve death. We're guilty and that's where we should be headed. But our God's not a vindictive God, is he? You know that famous dad threat, don't make me come down there. Our God has come down in the person of Jesus Christ. And when he came down, he didn't come down and say, oh, you're going to get what you deserve. He came down And he bore what we deserve. He bore a death that was our punishment for our rebellion against God. His death in place of ours. Raised on the third day. His life given as our life as we turn to him and trust in him. That's why the angels rejoice and they rejoice before the shepherds with these words. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They say, this is God's highest display of his glory. Creation was a great display of the glory of God, but there is no higher display of the glory of God than his acts of salvation, showing his holiness, his justness, his grace, his peace, and his love. And every single one who recognizes they've dishonored the king, who's blessed them with everything, They turn from their sin, from living for themselves. They turn to him, trusting in his death was their death on their behalf. They are reconciled to God. They have peace with the king of kings. In that one instant, from an enemy of God to his family. You'll never see that happen in any other sphere, will you? To go from enemy to family. If, you, if this is in a human sense, you've got to take a while before you get that sort of credit, before you get that sort of respect. Enemy to beloved family. It's one of the things that we love together at Christmas. Time together to be with family. But today, I want us to rejoice. We have been adopted into God's family. Not because we deserve to be or because he thought, oh, that one's cute, I want that one. Obviously, he wasn't pointing at me with the cute side of things. But because he has sent a saviour who has rescued us from the consequences of our rebellion. So today, if you know him, to rejoice that you're in his family. Or if you're hearing this for the first time, and you're like, yes, this is the longing in my heart. This is what God has placed in me. It makes sense when you say that God has made it. It's always been there in me. I want to know there was something more. And this resonates with me. Maybe this is the day when you say, God, I want you to invite me into your family. 
I want to turn to you. I want to trust your son, Jesus. I want to experience the love and care of you as my heavenly father for all of my life. He's not a nasty God to live for. This is a God who would come into our world and would die for you. He is worth being trusted. He is good. What a joy Christmas is. It's a day when we celebrate this. There is one saviour who brings everlasting peace. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. In any other human relationship, if people were to constantly upset and offend to the extent to which we have to you, we would give up. We would wash our hands and say, that's it. God, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for the promise that your patience was specifically designed to lead us to repentance, that we would turn to you. We thank you that you have provided us, Savior, because we know there's nothing we could have done to make us right in your sight. So we thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you that he willingly endured the cross for the joy set before him, for the joy of adopting many more into his family as his children. We give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.